court and just say, parents have no rights with abortion of their minors. They just have no rights. And I could be done now, <laughs> but I will go into it a little more. And there is some hope, so I don't want to depress you yet. But uh, the handouts that you got, there's some more on the back table, some shorter ones. But it says here, this is the Guttmacher Institute. This is their latest periodical every month. As Dr. Hassan has said, Mary Hassan gave her talk earlier about parental rights and abortion a little. She touched on it briefly. Guttmacher is very good about giving you data because they want to keep on top of things any threat to, because uh, they're the arm, the research arm of Planned Parenthood. So this is the most recent. And they say right here, because the US Supreme Court has ruled that states may not give parents an absolute veto over their child's decision to have an abortion, most state parental involvement requirements include a judicial bypass procedure that allows a minor to receive a court approval for an abortion without their parents' knowledge or consent. It's pretty chilling. Every state is obligated to give children a children, as young as 11, 12, 13, the right to an abortion if they can convince the judge that they're mature enough. And judges are pretty much convinced that they're mature enough. Um, but they have some great data, and we'll go over some of it as we go on. But I just thought you'd be interested in some of these charts here. They're kind of deceiving. It makes it look like, you know, 38 states require parental involvement. So you're thinking, wow, that's good. But it's meaningless when the judicial bypass is really a rubber stamp. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, things are very bad in terms of abortion and parental rights. I mean, and they're getting worse. California is, uh, Gavin Newsom was just almost impeached. <laughs> um, but Californians rescued him from the impeachment as governor. And he owes a lot to the abortion lobby in his state. And so what he's done is give them gifts. And the two gifts are, um, they're very disturbing gifts, because one of them has to, do with, uh, has to do with children. And um, on September 22nd, the first bill, 1356, he signed, makes it illegal to film or photograph patients or employees within 100 feet of an abortion clinic. But the second one relates directly to parental rights because AB 1184 allows insured individuals, including minors, to keep sensitive services, just like um, Mary Hassan's talk uh, about sensitive services, Minors are allowed to keep sensitive services confidential, not just from their parents, but also from the insurance policy holder, uh, which is usually their parents, generally the parents of the minor undergoing abortion. This is a huge gift to the abortion industry because they will now be able to have abortions paid for through insurance policies of parents, and the parents will never know that their insurance paid for an abortion. In the past, you know, the parents would see, you know, hey, you know, didn't meet my deductible. Where did this come from? But this new bill requires insurance companies to accommodate requests for confidential communication of medical information, regardless of whether disclosure would endanger the individual. That is set to take effect in July of 2022. The bill specifically mentions sexual and reproductive health 
But it also mentions, even though that's not my topic, it was uh, Mary Hassan's topic, it also mentions gender reaffirming or gender affirming care, meaning that a child could have a surgical procedure to be gender affirming what the child wants, have the operation, the surgery paid for by the insurance company, and the parents would never know they had that surgery. That's a huge gift. And Planned Parenthood, you know, does a lot of this. Um, Planned Parenthood is really raking in the money because of this, um, because they do a lot of gender work. I don't think people are aware of the huge revenue streams that are flowing into the coffers of Planned Parenthood with this new transgender movement. Um, lots of money. It's uh, filling their coffers, not just abortion services, not just selling the unborn children's baby organs, um, but now it's gender reaffirming contraception as well, but uh, hormones, and they're gonna be involved, I'm sure, more with the surgical portion of that. And now no insurance company can tell anybody that they paid for that. I, I find that very disturbing. So it's really been about 50 years, well, since Roe v. Wade, as long as, it's been legal for a minor child, even those living in states with strict parental notification requirements, to get an abortion. Because there's always been the judicial, it really, well, not always. 1976, Planned Parenthood of Central Missouri versus Danforth. It was a Supreme Court case that ruled that states may not give parents an absolute veto over their child's decision. So almost from the first day of Roe v. Wade, three years later, um, in several rulings, the Supreme Court has allowed minors to receive court approval, what is known as judicial bypass for abortion procedures without their parents' knowledge or consent. The bypass requires judges to use specific criteria when determining whether or not to grant a waiver, but the waiver is almost always granted. It's almost never not granted, and these criteria can include the young person's intelligence, emotional stability, and understanding of the possible consequences of obtaining an abortion. Many states require a judge to use the legal standard of clear and convincing evidence, as you learned from the earlier presentation, to determine whether a minor is sufficiently mature. Um, but not all, and very few really go through with that. The result of the judicial bypass is that a child, even one as young as 12 or 13, has what amounts to an unfettered access to abortion in every state in the nation. And even though specific states may require the permission of a parent, federal laws supporting uh, sur surrounding abortion say that in mandate that in order to be constitution, any state law mandating parental involvement must allow teens to go to court to request a waiver of that requirement. And in all cases, the courts are ready, willing, and able to do that. Now, I come from a state where there's no parental notification at all. Connecticut, I grew up there. It's the most liberal state, really. Um, but the states who have no laws at all, there are 14 of them, um, no laws at all about parental notification. are They're not on your list, that what you have is your handout. And there's more handouts in the back if anybody would like to see these lists. But the 14 states are not surprising, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Montana, Nevada, Maine. Maine doesn't need parental notification as long as the child gets counseling, and the counseling can be at an abortion clinic. 
Uh, Minnesota, it's allowed if the child is neglect, neglected or abused. New Jersey allows no parental notification. Oregon, no parental. Pennsylvania, any adult can be in loco parentis. So if the child is with a, an older adult and got pregnant by that older adult, that an older adult could be the permission to get the abortion. Uh, Vermont, Washington, D.C., Washington State. Wisconsin surprised me because I always think of Wisconsin as more of a Christian state, a lot of Catholics living in Wisconsin. But they, don't, uh, they will allow a minor to get an abortion without parental permission if the child might commit suicide. So if the child just says, I'll kill myself if I have to tell my mother, no problem. Alaska has a parental notification law, but it's been permanently enjoined. So currently there are 38 states that require, require, and I put that in quotes, if, you know, um, parental involvement. 21 states require only parental consent. Three of these require both parents' consent. You'll see in your charts there. Um, seven states permit a minor to obtain an abortion if a grandparent or other adult relative a lot of these states don't require any identification. Only 11 states require identification for parental consent. Four states require proof of parenthood. So, I mean, anybody could go in and say they're a parent in most of these states. Two states require a minor's identification to have an abortion. All states that require parental involvement have the judicial bypass. Although the majority of states require some kind of parental involvement, most require the consent of no, or notification of only one parent. So it could be kept from the other parent. In a handful of states, both parents give permission, and you can see those states in your charts there. Most states do not require this. Some states require the minor and a parent to provide government-issued identification, which you have to provide everywhere. <laughs> um, to the abortion provider. And a couple require a notary, um, but that's very unusual. You'll see in your charts. I wouldn't want to go over all of them. Uh, California is leading the country in terms of... Um, Gavin Newsom is very proud of himself, and he's very grateful. He, he's alive because of the abortion industry. I really believe that. I, don't, I think he could have been impeached had it not been the huge campaign and the money from the abortion industry, because they did not want anyone else to be governor, especially um, who might have won. I mean, we had a conservative that was really a contender. Um, but at the last minute, all those celebrities came in. But Newsom now is like he's touting California as sort of the abortion capital of the country. And I just wrote an article for Crisis Magazine called Abortion Tourism, uh, The Return of Abortion Tourism. And what Gavin Newsom has said, he's promised, he said he wants to make California a national leader on reproductive and sexual health protections and rights, promising to make his state a haven for both in-state or out-of-state women seeking abortion Newsom's actions will have far-ranging consequences for the future of parental rights on the abortion decision of their daughters, as well as parental notification and permission. Um, abortion tourism, people, I'm old, so I remember the days when there was abortion tourism. 
Now, tourism, we think of, you know, somebody going on a trip for a lark. Before Roe, New York was the tour, our abortion tourism capital of the country. And there were abortion packages you could purchase. And living in Connecticut, I knew about this because I knew a girl whose mother took her to New York on an abortion package. And it included limo rides, it included plane rides. A limo would pick you up at the airport, take you to the abortion facility, put your mother in a hotel. Um, Bernard Nathanson and Larry later talked about that, wrote about that. Um, it was a huge moneymaker. And that's coming back. Um, it disturbs me greatly. So even though Roe Ro might be overturned, and I'm hopeful it will be, there will be abortion tourism, because not every state is going to do away with abortion. Those states, that list that I gave you, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, <laughs> California, they will, they will have abortion for a long time. And they will become tourist meccas for abortion. Um, the new governor in New York City has already promised, she promises to provide, I wrote here in my article in Crisis, promising to provide safe passage for women. She is resurrecting the very lucrative pre-Roe abortion tourism for abortion seekers from all over the country, replete with abortion packages, including airfare limo rides uh, from the airports to abortion facilities, pre and post abortion stays. Um, Orlando, I live in, I have a house in Orlando now with my husband, and Orlando's trying to get in on the abortion tourism bandwagon which I was shocked by because you think of Orlando as a more conservative place. Well, they're advertising that Orlando is the tourist destination for lots of people. Here it is here. The Orlando Women's Center in Florida is already marketing abortion tourism on its website in a section called Medical Abortion Circumvention Tourism. Why the controversy? With a question mark. That's on their website promising an easy abortion process and a vacation in Florida at the same time, they anticipate that women will be drawn to what the Orlando Women's Center calls the most popular state for tourists and vacationers from around the world. I mean, have this idea of this family bringing their pregnant child with her Disney ears on, because that's all you see on the plane, you know, when you go to and from Orlando and drop her off at the abortion facility, spend the day in Disney, and then pick her up and go to Universal Studios the next day. Because that's really what they're promising here, abortion tourism, which is creepier than creepy, but that's where we are right now. Abortion tourism is a frightening thing. I remember this book, reading this book. Um, it's called In Necessity and Sorrow. And many of the stories in this book are girls 15, 16, 17 years old, who are part of the abortion tourism that went on in the early 70s, before Roe, when abortion was the tourist destination. And it's written by a woman who was very conflicted. She had an abortion herself in New York City, didn't really want to have an abortion, but she, she was married and her husband pressured her and she had it. And she's glad she had it, but she's very conflicted about it. And the whole book is just horror after horror after horror. She spends weeks in this abortion clinic to try to, I think, justify her abortion. And she calls the book In Necessity and Sorrow because she knows how horrific abortion is. 
And she writes about these young girls on the saline floor, and I don't mean to get graphic about it, but the saline floor is where they do the saline abortions, and you know, late-term abortion. They can't just do a, an aspiration abortion, they have to do a saline abortion. Horrific. And young girls, she talked about the very young girls who hid their pregnancies from their mothers or had to get the money together to go on the abortion tourism trip with their boyfriends or their girlfriends. So a lot of these girls described in this book are 24 weeks pregnant and they're having saline abortions and Magda Dennis is horrified by this. But she concludes in the book, after writing these horrible graphic stories, this is out of print, so I, I have four or five copies if anyone wants to borrow them and keep them in my office. Um, horror after horror, uh, she says that it's necessary. Abortion is necessary. Now, Elizabeth Kirk knows she's in our audience today. She, um, she was part of a brief in the Dobbs decision, in the, the Dobbs case, um, that's going to be before the Supreme Court, and they're disputing that. But Magda Dennis says it's necessary. Women need abortion. Girls need abortion. Their lives will be ruined. And this brief says, no, women don't need abortion. We're doing just fine without abortion. You know, our new Supreme Court justice did just fine without abortion, and she's doing a great job there. She didn't need abortion. But this, this Dennis, I mean, I, I read this book and then I, I cry because it's long out of print. The book is an honest portrayal of the brutality of the abortion industry and the young girls that it has destroyed because these most many of these cases are young girls. To her credit, Dennis, a pro-choice psychiatrist who had chosen her, to abort her own child during those heady pro-abortion days in New York City, seemed shocked at the horrific conditions she observed during the several months she spent observing the activities and procedures that occurred in one of those abortion tourist destinations in the city of New York. Interviewing the young girls in the process of abortion, Dennis described the sorrow these women experienced and the pain. I mean, a late-term abortion, these girls went through labor and delivery. In one chapter called The Saline Floor, she describes the activities on the saline floor which was reserved for the late-term abortion. She provides readers with the heartbreaking stories of these young women and their boyfriends or their girlfriends or their moms who traveled with them from small towns throughout the country. And although the stories of the children are indeed heartbreaking, the true tragedy emerges when Dennis witnesses the actual abortion on that late-term saline floor. She writes, I was drawn to the unit, irresistible by my reactions of disbelief, sorrow, horror, compassion, guilt. This place depresses me, yet I hang around after working hours. When I leave, I behave outside with the expansiveness of one who has just escaped a disaster. I have bad dreams. My sense of complicity in something nameless grows and festers. I consider giving up the research. But fortunately for those of us who need to be reminded of what abortion is all about, Dennis overcomes her fear and her guilt over her own abortion long enough to continue to document the real victims of abortion tourism when she describes what she saw in the operating room following an abortion. This is hard to read. I remove with one hand the lid of a bucket. I look inside the bucket in front of me. There is a small naked person in there floating in a bloody liquid 
plainly the tragic victim of a drowning accident. But then perhaps this was no accident because the body is purple with bruises and the face has the agonized tautness of one forced to die too soon. Death overtakes me in a rush of madness. I think she became mad. She died not too long. I mean, she died young. She was horrified by that. Young girls, 15 years old, having a pregnancy to go 24 weeks and then have a saline abortion and that. And she watched it all. I don't know. She was almost like forcing herself. I think she was, you know, in Catholics, we, we talk about doing penance. Maybe she felt she had to do penance for what because she, she felt terrible guilt about her own abortion. But she still wouldn't be like, Pro-life. Why wouldn't you be pro-life when you see such horror? But she wasn't. She's in favor of abortion. And she, until she died, she was in favor of a woman's right to choose. Um, Supreme Court, what has happened, though, um, there's been some renewed activity. I don't want to leave you with <laughs> sad things. But, I mean, the judicial bypass, I have a whole section on it being a rubber stamp. Um, in the 1976 case of Planned Parenthood versus Danforth, the Supreme Court rejected a Missouri statute that required an unmarried minor. That's how we got here. But the decision was only five to four, and even the majority hinted that a less restrictive statute might be acceptable. The specific provisions of the Missouri statute had had, well, there were four, and they were pretty draconian. I mean, I find them wonderful, but number one, the provision defining viability for purposes that any abortion not necessary to preserve the life of the, uh, or health of the mother should not be performed unless the attending physician would certify that the fetus was not viable. Two, a provision requiring that a woman prior to submitting to abortion during the first 12 weeks must certify in writing her consent and that her consent was informed, and a provision prior um, requiring the prior written consent of the spouse of a woman. You know, that would never fly, and it didn't. I mean, that's why this never. And then the last one, a provision with respect to the first 12 weeks of pregnancy when the pregnant woman is unmarried and under 18 for the written consent of a parent or guardian. And the complaint charged the provision of the bill were invalid because, and this was their wording, they deprived the plaintiffs and their patients their constitutional rights, including the privacy of the doctor-patient relationship, the physician's right to the free exercise of medical practice, and the right of a woman to determine whether to bear children, the right of the life of their patients, and the right to receive adequate. All in violation of the first, fourth, fifth, eighth, ninth, and 14th amendments, so it violated everything. So the US Supreme Court ruled that the viability definition was a matter of the judgment, and it also ruled that a pregnant woman's consent provision was not unconstitutional. Husbands, it ruled that husbands have no rights over the decision of the woman to abort her unborn child, because it's her child, not his. Writing that spousal consent provision was unconstitutional, since the state being unable to regulate or prescribe abortion during the first stage of pregnancy, the court ruled that the state could not delegate authority to any particular person, like a husband is a particular person, even a pregnant woman's spouse to prevent abortion. 
and the prohibition on saline amniocentesis was ruled as unconstitutional since it failed as a reasonable regulation for the protection of maternal health. Part of the problem with minors and abortion is they're typically late abortion. And you see that in Magda Dennis's book, you see that in all the literature, because they try to hide it, they don't even admit it to themselves. This right for a minor to access abortion without her parents' knowledge was solidified in 1979 when the US Supreme Court case Bilotti versus Baird invalidated a Massachusetts parental consent statute, even though the statute provided that a teenager who couldn't get her parents could obtain a court order for good cause shown, the majority of the justices throughout the 80s believed that the right of privacy only protected a woman's ability to choose to have an abortion without government interference. This continued throughout the 90s, and if anything, the rights of minors to access abortion without parental permission was just taken for granted. In fact, there began to be renewed calls for the judicial bypass to be eliminated completely, and some states have done that. An article published in 1994, Hofstra Law Review, maintained that although the court upheld the right of a teen to ab obtain an abortion without parental permission, um, the most significant aspect of Bilotti lay in, in the plurality of opinion written by Justice Lewis Powell. They, the article suggested that while finding the statute of mandating parental consent unacceptable, Powell assisted future legislatures desiring to require parental involvement by describing the kind of alternative route to authorization or bypass option that would make such a statute constitutional. The Bilotti bypass procedure became the basis for current constitutional law on abortion rights of minors. So you really have to go through this Bilotti before you can make inroads. The court has since uphold, upheld several parental consent and notification statutes, but they had to have some version of the Bilotti bypass procedure. It's really a compromise between the traditional legal deference to parental authority. I think it's just a wink and a nod, but the procedure centers on the concept of maturity as um, Mary Hassan said this morning, or this afternoon, the state may not mandate parental or judicial approval of abortion decisions of all pregnant teenagers because of the unique nature of it. Our problem is that there's nobody on our side in terms of, as, um, as we learned earlier, the pediatricians are on this side. I, I call this part of my paper, the pediatrician problem. Pediatrics, the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, has lobbied, long lobbied, against any parental notification requirement. I don't understand that. Maybe you understand that better, but I do not understand that. No parental notification requirements according to pediatrics. In fact, in an article promoting the adolescent's right to confidential access to abortion, the Committee on Adolescence of the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests there is no evidence that mandatory parental involvement results in any benefits to the family intended by the legislation. No studies show that forced disclosure results in improved parent-child relationships, improved communications, or improved satisfaction with the decision. But in states with parental notification laws, adolescents who are unwilling to inform their parents, just use the judicial bypass, 
or they go out of state, which is what we're going to have if Roe is ever overturned. The authors of pediatrics decry this, and they believe that judicial bypass is an onerous burden, that that's too much trouble. There's increasing evidence of negative effects of delayed, so they're blaming the judicial bypass on the delayed, um, on the judicial, blaming delayed abortion on the judicial bypass, which is a lie, and they had to admit it. Um, American studies have corroborated European research that shows that um, it only delays it by two or three days because the judicial bypass is really just a rubber stamp. But we should look at the impact. There have been some studies of the impact of laws requiring, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, if they have to tell their parents, they'll be murdered, it, honor killing. That's what one of the writers said. You know, the Muslim girl, her father would murder her if she tells him. But since the earliest days following Planned Parenthood versus Danforth, the greatest concern from the pro-choice side has always been whether the parental involvement laws would harm minors. Pro-choice feminists have argued that parental notification would diminish the autonomy of minor women, suggesting that parental notification would jeopardize the minor's ability to have control over her own body. Pro-choice advocates have long decried such laws. So in an attempt to document these harms, the Guttmacher Institution, with funding from uh, Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, commissioned a major, to their credit, they do good research at Guttmacher, um, and to see if minor children seeking abortion are indeed harmed by mandatory parental involvement. Not surprisingly, uh, Guttmacher found that the judicial bypass is problematic because they believed it would cause a delay. But in their own review of the literature on the impact of laws requiring parental involvement, they concluded that the clearest documented impact of parental involvement laws is an increase in the number of minors traveling outside their home states to obtain abortion. Guttmacher documented such travel in Massachusetts, Mississippi, and Missouri. For example, in Massachusetts, prior to liberalizing their parental notification, 29% of minors who had abortion did so in neighboring states like Maine. In South Carolina, where the law only applied to minors younger than 17 and a grandparent could do it, no out-of-state travel was detected. But in Texas, a state with strong parental rights, relatively few minors traveled out of the state. Even Gottmacher had to admit that several studies of parental involvement laws, rates have been shown to reduce abortion rates by causing minors either to continue an unwanted pregnancy or to take steps to avoid pregnancy. <laughs> the clearest result is from Texas, where the abortion rate decreased and the birth rate increased among women slightly younger than age 18 in comparison with women slightly older. Texas study illustrates that in some cases, the laws may encourage the number of minors to continue unwanted pregnancy. In Texas, there are resources to help. I mean, this new Texas, you know, the heartbeat law, they've pumped in $100 million to help people continue pregnancy. This isn't just like a draconian mean law the way it's being presented in the media. There's so many supports that have been just infused into Texas. Lots of resources. Um, but of course, Texas also has this group called Jane Do, a Jane, Jane's Do Process. <laughs> um, and it's like a, a consortium of lawyers that will help kids get through, the young women get through judicial bypass. 
in an op-ed posted on the Jane's due process, they decried all parental involvement laws in Texas, claiming that these girls, she counsels, and shepherds through the bypass system would be murdered by their parents. She said, one Muslim teen told me if he knew he would perform an honor killing, maybe. The health outcomes of children, does it affect children? children born to teens. Some people will say, well, if it's an unwanted pregnancy, these teens will be more likely to abuse their children. Guttmacher Institute research initially suggested that one study found that parental involvement laws were associated with an increase in child abuse and maltreatment by mothers who gave birth to unwanted children. But this correlation was not, it was a poor study. It was not replicated in any other studies. And even Guttmacher said, there was no clear correlation between these laws and child abuse or maltreatment. In fact, in a similar study two years later, the authors found that such parental involvement laws actually led to a decrease in child abuse and maltreatment. They attributed this to fewer teenagers having children, inferring that the presence of these laws in a state leads to a change maybe in the sexual or contraceptive behavior of these youth. To their credit, Guttmacher concluded, the literature review reels, reveals no studies that evaluated increased costs in obtaining abortion due to delays, travel, or bypass proceedings, the impact of minors being forced to consult their parents' or minors' opinions about the involvement. It is possible, even likely, that over time, minors adjust to parental involvement laws and they even become more conservative than their sexual behavior by avoiding early sexual intercourse or using contraception. Parental rights opponents have claimed that parental involvement in their children's abortion decision removes their children's autonomy and threatens their well-being. Some, including the Committee on Adolescence in the American Academy of Pediatrics, have argued that parental involvement lead to unwanted children who will be abused and neglected. There's no research to support that. The Committee on Adolescence also suggests that the judicial bypass is detrimental to the emotional well-being of the pregnant teen because the court proceedings are burdensome, humiliating, and stressful, and put an undue burden for adolescents seeking abortion. None of the research supports such beliefs. In fact, even the Guttmacher Institute has suggested that minors may indeed benefit from parental involvement in their children's abortion decisions. You don't read that anywhere, do you? No. Because nobody wants that to come out. The children, I mean, read it. This is from Guttmacher. In fact, even the Guttmacher Institute has suggested that minors may indeed benefit from parental involvement in their children's abortion decisions. They act like that was a revelation. You know, who would have thought? We we've always known that. Everybody in this room knows that. It's difficult to predict the future of whether parents will ever have a voice in the abortion decisions made by their pregnant daughters. But as we've seen in the 2021 Supreme Court case coming up, Dobbs versus Mississippi, and the controversial new law passed in Texas, which prohibits abortion after a fetal heartbeat is, heartbeat is detected, there's great optimism, hope, from the pro-life community and the parental rights community that parental rights will begin again to take precedence in the abortion decisions of their children.